Hallelujah. At, at last count, seven different persons have come to me and said that they've either received a one-time uh, miracle, financial miracle, or they, I think three of them mentioned a raise that they've received. There's seven more reasons right there why he's still worthy. Amen. The Bible does say praise him for his mighty acts. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What I loved about what just happened was you also praised him according to his excellent greatness. Before you knew any of that, you were still praising him because he's worthy, period. Hallelujah. Well, glory to God. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated in Jesus' name. Thank you for coming tonight, for making Wednesday night important in your schedule and time. Amen. Thank you to all who are joining us online. We greet and bless you in the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen and amen. Got an exciting weekend coming up. It's uh, Labor Day weekend, of course, and so many of you might already have Monday off and maybe already have plans, but uh, before Monday, we've got a great Sunday coming and looking forward to what God is going to do Sunday. Amen. There's going to be some traveling, and so let's keep those in prayer. Some of those traveling are going to be my son and his wife and my daughter. Amen. And also, uh, how many of you remember Brother Nate Rippey? Many of you remember him? Little Nate, right? He's coming as well. So we're going to have a great weekend. Some young people are coming to, to visit and be with us. And you're going to get to hear Braxton preach in the second half this coming Sunday. And so I'm looking forward to that. Amen. So be praying for them. Thank you for praying for Brooklyn. Uh, last week this time I was on the road rushing to St. Louis. And uh, thankfully, thank God, nothing was seriously wrong uh, the worst that has come out of it is Brooklyn has a minor concussion and needs a little bit of rest and maybe a Tylenol or two. But, you know, thank God it wasn't any more serious than it was. Uh, no cuts or abrasions and no permanent damage. Car, of course, didn't survive. Um, but God is good. Amen? Amen? Amen. So thank you for praying. We do appreciate that. My wife and I thank you for your prayers and support. Praise God. We're going to go ahead and dismiss our children for... King's Kids and King's Club, whatever it's, what do you guys call it now? I get it. Kingdom Kids. All right. I got to remember that. Kingdom Kids. Amen. And uh, our youth. Yes. Youth. Okay. Our Stokes Student Ministries. God bless you. Amen. Our Elements is already out. And by the way, if you're interested in Elements, uh, it will restart again in January. If you're interested in that, please talk to Brother Donnie, Sister Kara. You can also talk to me or uh, Pastor Lucas, but they help oversee that directly, so better off talking to them and getting set up for when we restart that. Amen and amen. Well, today, or it's today, yeah, today's the first, we started a new reading uh, with uh, Judges, Ruth, and Esther for this month, and if you're on the Version app, of course, you've hopefully been invited and you are following along with that. Uh, I'm going to start, though, in Ruth tonight. Now, Jeremy's going to be teaching the, the bulk of Wednesdays this month, but uh, had to work tonight, so I'm uh, filling in for him uh, tonight. But uh, I'm going to start on Ruth, and, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. But let's read Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up and turn to Ruth. One of the easiest ways that, that uh, Keith has helped me to remember how to find Ruth is this. If you, uh, after the Pentateuch, you know, first five books of the law, you didn't have Joshua, 
then Judges and Ruth. So Joshua judges Ruth. You know, pretty weird that he does that. But anyway, okay. Boom, boom, okay, moving on. This is not the comedy hour. Hallelujah. But that's one simple way you can kind of remember where Ruth is found. I do find it interesting that a book of the Bible is named after a Moabite woman. And we'll get into that. But Ruth 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, from this, I want to teach tonight this title, A Famine in the House of Bread. Father, let the living word preach the written word. Make my tongue the pen of a ready writer and write your words upon our heart. Open our understanding that we might comprehend Scripture, cause every hindrance to be rebuked, cast away. Let us be convicted and converted. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. And if you believe it, would you say amen? Amen. Amen. The book of Ruth takes place during a time in Israel's history when, as the Bible says in Judges 21-25, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Let me just set a little bit of the chronological stage here for you. You've had Moses, about 80 years earlier, lead the people out of Israel, or out of Egypt, excuse me. He dies just prior to them entering the promised land, and Joshua then begins to lead the people. And they conquer and and take the promised land city by city, land by land, inch by inch, mountain by mountain, possessing the promises of God. But then Joshua dies, and there's no leader to step up after him. And so a time of the judges begins. But there's a lull in this time when the Israelites gather together and they pray and say, who shall go up for us? You can find this in the book of Judges, first chapter. And they pray, and and Judah shall go up. Amen. And so Judah kind of leads the charge, but there's still real no leader for a number of years. And technically, that's where Ruth falls chronologically. Okay? It really is about in between those first couple of chapters to the first judge that we see in the time of the judges. Ruth opens with tragedy. Not too many verses in, Elimelech dies, which is Naomi's husband, and shortly thereafter, even though her sons have married, uh, Milion and Malon, excuse me, Malon and Chilion, they both die. So it opens with this tragedy But it ends with triumph. The book of Ruth chronicles a beautiful love story of redemption despite adversity. The hopelessness that fills the first 15 verses of the first chapter gives way to the favor of God throughout the remainder of this small four-chapter book. 
Ruth does not know when she marries Chilion that one day she'll be in the lineage of Jesus Christ. She's a Moabite woman. And as Ephesians 3 verse 12 says, she's a stranger from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. She's not a Jew. She has no hope. By the way, how many of you can identify with that? Before Jesus, you had no hope. Well, I know I can. Because it had it not been for him, being the ultimate kinsman redeemer like Boaz, I'd still be lost in sin. Praise God. By the way, you ever want a good, corny, funny joke? Before he was married, Boaz was ruthless. I'm really on a fire tonight, ain't I? Tell you, Shannon ain't going to want to go home with me tonight. She's going to get a hotel or something. Say, man, that guy's crazy. Hallelujah. Well, again, this ain't comedy hour, but you know, every once in a while you need a little jokes to lighten the mood, right? Praise God. You see, the, the book of Ruth gives us hope that salvation will eventually be granted to whosoever will repent and be born again. So tonight, we're going to walk through some things that God has showed me from the book of Ruth, and I, I do believe it will edify and perfect you uh, as we do this together. As I mentioned, we're going to be reading through Judges and uh, Ruth and Esther in this uh, month of September, and a sneak preview in the year 2022, Lord willing, and if He hasn't returned yet and we're, not, and we're still here, as a united church, we're going to actually read the Bible together chronologically in 2022. And the reason for that, besides God kind of impressing that upon me, is it helps to understand where some of these things fall. Uh, just for example, uh, Psalm 1, written by David. Psalm 90, written by Moses about a thousand years before David. So you, you got, you know... <laughs> so we're going to read chronologically and get an understanding of how the Bible is laid out in that format. Uh, so, sneak preview again on that. There's a lot of chronological Bibles. If you're interested, come see me. I'll show you some, and you can put it on your Christmas wish list. See, you know, there we go. There's my Christmas interjection in the month of September. There we go. Let's talk about a famine in the house of bread. As I read the opening verse of Ruth, something stood out to me. There was a famine in the land. Did you know that Bethlehem means house of bread? Did you also know that because we see in verse 1 Bethlehem Judah together, it literally means a, a, the house of bread in a place of praise. And there's a famine there. The reason there's a famine is because every man did that which was right in his own eyes. If you were to go to the book of Judges chapter 2, and if you have your Bibles, just turn over there with me real quick, you're going to see something that I believe is the most tragic verse or verses in the entire Bible. In chapter 2 verse 10, and also all that generation were gathered together unto their fathers. This is this is one generation after Joshua and Caleb. So they died. Then this group called the elders kind of took over for a while. And then they died. And the third generation is verse 10. 
there arose another or a third generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works that he had done for Israel. Very next verse. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And I believe those four verses are some of the saddest, most tragic verses in the Bible. And it leads me to this point. This, to me, represents the dangers of religion, even religious Pentecostalism. Let me just say this. I do not believe, and, and, and I am one who could trace a heritage back of three or four years worth of, you know, grandpas and grandpas that live for Jesus. But I don't believe that you can live for God on that fact alone. Every generation, every person must have a first generation experience with God. I don't care if you can trace your lineage all the way back to Jesus Christ himself. You need to have a first generation experience. And I believe what happened was this. Joshua and Caleb, the first generation into the promised land, represents a conquering, possessing generation. They are taking the promise by force, so to speak, because that's what God is instructed them to do. There's victory after victory after victory after victory throughout the entire book of Joshua. Then the judges or, or then the uh, elders rise up and all they do is maintain those victories. There are no new victories. If I can put it in modern terms, there's no moves of God. There's no fresh experiences. There's nobody getting the Holy Ghost. There's nobody getting healed or delivered. There's nobody getting baptized. And a third generation doesn't know God or His works and begins to serve idols. In other words, we're just one generation away from extinction if we're not careful. It is why it is imperative that this is passed on to another generation. It is why when I see these children worshiping the way they do, it... it causes great joy within my spirit because they're catching a hold of something. They're getting a hold of a relationship with God. Yes, I know they like to have fun. Yes, I know they like to run around and get candy and all that stuff and bang doors and all that. Other. Praise God. You know, they're kids. Hallelujah. But they love to worship. And, and, and I'll tell you this right now, straight up, you want to see me get upset? You want to see my bad side, my ugly side? Talk to me about these kids worshiping, and I'm telling you, I'm going to come up and down on you like bees on honey. Because you probably should be one worshiping with them. Amen? I love it when these kids are grasping it, getting a hold of it, loving prayer, loving worship. Speaking in tongues, wanting to get baptized, bringing their friends. Amen? It's revival. It's what it's all about. Can I also say this? We adults need to keep that kind of childlike faith. Amen. 
So why was there a famine in the house of bread, in the place of praise? Because everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. Instead of trusting God, they were trusting in their flesh. Instead of worshiping the one true God, they were committing an idolatry. Wow. Can I tell you that if you leave the house of bread and the place of praise, you will go to a place of sin? Look where Elimelech chose to go. Even though the word sojourn means temporarily, even though he did not plan on staying there forever, he went to Moab, which means from the mother's father, the incestuous son of Lot. If you don't know the story, go back in the book of Genesis, and when Lot has to be dragged, literally dragged out of the city, and his wife turns around and turns to a pillar of salt, he begs his two daughters not to do so. They continue going to Zoar. He has begged the angels, I don't want to go to the mountains. Can I go to this little city? He lets them go to the little city. The other five cities of the plain are destroyed. The two daughters think, well, the world's coming to an end. We're never going to get married. Get their dad drunk, have sex with him, and have two kids. Ben-Ami and Moab. Ben-Ami became the father of the Ammonites and Moab the father of the Moabites. From incestuous relationship, two nations that plagued Israel were born. It's just a little city, Brother Powell. It's just a little thing. Mm-hmm. Tell that to Lot. And so this is where Elimelech goes, to a place of sin, a place representing sin. Dear Lord. But it begs the question, why is there a famine in the first place? It also begs the question to me that, oddly enough, a lot of people stayed. Why didn't he stay? Why didn't he try to figure it out? Why didn't he repent? Why didn't he say, you know what? I'm going to see what I can do different here. Hmm. And the reason I say that is because a few years later when Naomi and Ruth come back, it was about 10 years later to be exact. You can see that in the text. The city is well inhabited. Crops are bountiful. And I don't believe it took nine and a half years to happen. How many of you know that trouble don't last always, right? It rained this yesterday morning, right? Monday, right? But, but it shined today, you know? I mean, <laughs> storms don't last always. And if they would have repented, the famine would have been over. If they would have repented, God would have turned the tide for them. Does that make sense? Why didn't Elimelech repent? Why did he go to Moab? You see, Elimelech didn't trust God or his timing. He took matters into his own hands, and it cost him his life and the lives of his two sons. By the way, let me just interject here. Beware of making hasty decisions. Beware of doing what is right in your own eyes. If you read in Genesis 26, you'll find a man by the name of Isaac who there's a famine in the land and God says, hey, I want you to stay and trust me and he does and he sows and in the same year that he stays and sows and trusts the Lord, the Bible says he reaps a hundredfold harvest. You see, God has a way of doing miracles if you'll stay and trust him. If you run at the first sign of trouble, 
Well, that's another message for another time. So Ruth is now presented with a choice, as well as Orpah, may or may not be her sister. I don't think it was from everything I can discover, but definitely sister-in-law. And so now Naomi says, your sons have died. I have no other sons. My husband is dead. I'm going back, and hopefully as a widow, I can be taken care of by my other relatives. And Orpah's like, okay, see you. Bye, Mom. I'm staying here. I like my chances of finding a guy here. And so she chooses to stay. But Ruth, in some of the most beautiful literature in the Bible, especially that element of, of love, and, and I don't mean to cheapen it, okay? It's not a romance novel. But truly, there's romance there. There's, there's beauty there. As she says, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go. And we see this beautiful idea of Ruth saying, I want to stay with you. I want to help you. Interestingly, her name means friendship. So could it be that she's thinking, you know what? Naomi was there for me. I need to be there for her. I don't know what was on her mind, but whatever it was, she makes the choice to go and help Naomi. Naomi's getting older, so she can't glean in the fields like some of the other paupers and widows can. And so because she's younger, she goes and does it for her. And she doesn't know what fields she's going in. She just is told that the law is that you can go glean in the fields. And wouldn't you know it, she chooses Boaz's field. Well, if you know the end of the story, you know that she gets married to Boaz. God blesses their marriage and they have a son, Obed. And Obed grows up and gets married and has a son named Jesse. And Jesse get, grows up Gets married and has a son named David. You'll have to ask Pastor Lucas for the exact stuff, and I meant to do it earlier today and get the information, but he was studying recently and showed it to me, and I looked it up and confirmed it. There's a lot of Hebrew scholars that believe Orpah went back to Moab and married somebody who became the great-grandmother eventually of Goliath. Now, if these Hebrew scholars are correct, and I don't see any reason they're not, then this brings up an interesting conclusion I have. Beware of the choice you make, because choices have consequences. In my first book on the Psalms called Two Choices, I wrote this in the epilogue. In the opening account of human history, we discover the first time two choices are given, Adam and Eve can obediently partake of all the trees in the garden, including the tree of life. Or they can disobediently partake of the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Unfortunately, they make the unwise and sinful choice and partake of the forbidden fruit. The Bible continues presenting two choices, sometimes implicitly and other times explicitly. Jacob could have chosen to reject God instead of repenting. Joseph could have chosen bitterness instead of forgiveness. Moses set before Israel life and death, blessing and cursing, and then gave the correct answer. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. Deuteronomy 30, 19. I could continue with many more examples, but that might require an entirely separate book. 
Suffice it to say, you can sum up the whole Bible in two choices. Genesis records the first time that mankind is given the opportunity to decide between the two choices, and Revelation records the final opportunity to choose. If you choose wisely, you will be numbered in the first resurrection. Revelation 20, verse 6. But if you choose unwisely, you will partake of the second death. Revelation 20, 14. You only live forever. So choose wisely. You see, we've, we used to hear that phrase, YOLO, you only live once. That's not true. You only live forever. Orpah, again, if these Hebrew scholars are right, eventually marries and her grandson is Goliath. Ruth makes a wise choice, and we know biblically she's the grandmother, great-grandmother of David. So what will you choose? Something else that really stood out to me about this account is look how Ruth started. As a servant gleaning in a field to eventually owning the field. She marries the owner of the field and by right becomes a partaker of its inheritance, meaning her children become a partaker of the inheritance. It's kind of interesting that the book opens with a famine, but yet ends with this bountiful harvest. You see, Ruth made the right choice. God blessed her to go from gleaning as a pauper to being married to the owner. Isn't that what happened to us? We were paupers in sin, and now we're sons and daughters of the king. Amen? We're now royal priests. We're now ambassadors. But before, we were dead in sins and trespasses. Same thing with Ruth. The book of Ruth opens with a famine, but closes with favor. There are tragedy and death that fill its first chapter, but triumph and deliverance fill its last chapter. By the way, Ruth marries Boaz. Do you know who Boaz's mom was? If you know, don't say it out loud. If you, if you know, just kind of shake your head. Anybody? No? Yes? A couple of you, maybe. Him you know Danny? <laughs> Ready? Ready for something shocking? Boaz's mom is Rahab the harlot. By the way, isn't it interesting that of all the people mentioned in the lineage of Jesus in Matthew, there's two women specifically named, and it's Rahab and it's Ruth. Both of them Gentile women. Ah, I'm telling you, don't despise the day of small beginnings. You might have been born a Moabite. You might have been like Rahab the harlot. But if you've made some good choices like those two women did, well... You now have a new name. You now have a new purpose. You now are recorded alongside. Well, my Lord, have mercy. I said it earlier, but I want to come back to it. Even those individuals who are born into godly homes and families, they have to have a first-generation experience. 
I drilled it into our kids. Shannon drilled it into our kids. Don't just ride on mom and dad's coattails. You've got to have a prayer life. You've got to have a, a, you know, a relationship with God on your own. And the same is true for all of us. I don't consider myself any better than anyone else. Some, some people's testimony is delivered out of. Some delivered from. But we both need deliverance. And whether you were born in you know, the world and a worldly home and family and came to God in your later years or you were you know, born on a Pentecostal pew, you better have a first-generation experience with God. Amen? Amen. I can show you plenty of people who should have had it made, <clears throat> like Solomon, who didn't turn out all that well. And his sons didn't need either. You know, we, we need to understand that. So, praise God. The book of Ruth gives us a very beautiful picture of sin and salvation. Here's why. All of us can relate to Elimelech. All of us have done that which was right in our own eyes. All of us were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And all of us, if we could bring Elimelech back from the dead, I guarantee he'd say, if I could change one thing, I'd have never left. And all of us can relate to that. We're also, like Elimelech and his two sons, dead in sin and trespasses. We're also like Ruth, born at a, at a place in time where we have no hope. But continuing this comparison, all of us come to a place of choice when we can either remain in Moab, our sin, or we can go back to Bethlehem, the house of bread. All of us come to that place like Orpah and Ruth and have to make up in our minds which decision we're going to make, which way we're going to go. I'm thankful that you're here tonight because it tells me at least in part you've made the right decision. But I'm praying for some more outside these walls to also make that decision to serve God. I'm praying for some prodigals to wake up in the pig pen and come home. Praise the Lord. Because those who do, those who make the right choice, will meet the kinsman redeemer. Interesting story here, and an and interesting account, rather, in Scripture. And Boaz becomes what's called the kinsman redeemer. When there's a widow and there's no one to, to produce seed going forward, God set up a plan in the law that a, a, a brother to that could marry that woman and bring forth seed to continue that line. Now there's, in a story, there's an older brother who technically would have the right because he's the firstborn, but doesn't want it because he doesn't want Ruth getting what should be his own sons alone. So they make a deal in the city gates, and oddly enough, part of it was handing your shoe. I really don't know what that means. 
You know, it's like, what am I going to do with one sandal? And you're going to go home half barefoot. But regardless, he hands him his shoe. That's a signifying uh, clue to the elders that, yep, this guy has relinquished his right. And Boaz gladly does it. But rather than being this arranged marriage and all that, there's a, there's a love story that comes from this because Boaz has been first impressed by Ruth's love for her mother-in-law. She could have easily stayed. I mean, I, I know this is going to sound funny when I say it because it was funny when I just thought it. But, you know, nobody answered this out loud. In fact, I'm going to turn around. No, I'm, I, really, how many of us would help our mother-in-law? I know a couple of you would. I'm not going to ask how many wouldn't, though. Because that's going to be the telling thing, Right? And yet it's like, you know, you hear all the mother-in-law jokes and all this, but Naomi or Ruth, had they existed at that time, that's not what she's thinking. She's thinking, no, I want to help. I want to be there. I want to serve. And I don't believe at any point did she know, well, one day I'm going to be in the lineage of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that says she was a prophetess. Even when Obed was born, I guarantee you she wasn't thinking, yeah, well, you know, two more boys and woohoo, here comes David. No. She's just in a servant. And so that's how Boaz finds her and begins to fall in love with her. So it's not just this arranged marriage concept. There's a beautiful love story here. And the same is true with us. Where does God find us? at a place where we're, we're trying to make it on our own and, and we're doing the best we can and we're, we're, we're trying to figure things out and we're paupers in the field and we're just trying to pick up the scraps that are left behind and God comes along and says, I can do something with that. Anybody thankful that God doesn't see us the way we see ourselves? Hallelujah. You see, those who make the right choice may have started off hopeless but they'll end their lives filled with hope. The book of Ruth opens with a famine in the house of bread in the place of praise. Isn't it interesting that Bethlehem will be the place where the bread of life is born? Isn't it interesting that he'll be of the line of Judah? Isn't it interesting that although the book opens with a famine, it ends with hope that there is the bread of life coming one day? Amen. Well, I think we too can tap into that hope. Tap in to that strength in the Word of God. Ruth is a story of love and devotion and redemption. It gives us a beautiful contrast to the darkness that fills the days of the judges, the apostasy that would happen. They would repent, you know, and, oh, we need God. And God would raise up a judge. Things would get good. They'd go back to idols. The judge would die. They'd go back in their sin. And, and this cycle just repeats itself all through the book of Judges. And so kind of at the beginning, but but even after the first couple of chapters of, 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 of the darkness there, here's this beautiful story 
nestled in our Bibles to show us that there's hope. I don't know about you, but there's some dark days that we've been through. 2020 was absolutely crazy. 2021, although we haven't locked down, praise God, ain't looking too much better. Meanwhile, the devil's trying to get everybody divided and the church all messed up and, and the world in a frenzy and, and some people are falling for it. There's a lot of darkness around us. But can I tell you that in the midst of all that, there's still hope. Can I also tell you that as this church being a house of bread and a place of praise, we better never have a famine. And the way that we can ensure that is to maintain this being a place of prayer. The way that we can maintain it is this remaining a place of praise. And as we do so, there will be plenty of bread for anybody, for whosoever will. Amen. I don't know about you. I don't like stale preaching. I, I, I don't think you like it either, right? I, I mean, in other words, this is the bread of life. So when we present it, preachers, we need to present it with anointing, with a sense of freshness. I don't know about you, but I don't want canned sermons. I, I don't want, you know, Sermon Central. <laughs> Amen? I want the Word of God. I want something that's fresh, something that's anointed. I want people to be able to say, I found what I needed there. I don't ever want there to be a famine in the house of bread, in the place of praise. My God. My God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We're living way too close to the coming of the Lord. We are living way too close to the current events that are happening around us being written right here on the pages of our Bibles. I don't want enticing words of man's wisdom. I want a demonstration of the Spirit and power of God. I want to see what I saw tonight, a child speaking in tongues. Lucas, I think you told me she walked in and just couldn't hardly speak in English. That's what I want. I want people being delivered. I want people being healed. I want the book of Acts being fulfilled. If people leave, and they have, I want it to be, not be, rather, because we had stale bread or no bread. I used to work at Subway. We had a little trick. So if you've ever smelled the bread at Subway, this is the trick. You start making, especially if you're in a strip mall area, Okay, because you want all the other offices around to smell it. And they would even, and I'm not, I'm not exactly, they would design some of the duct work to do that, to where it blows it, and, you know, you can smell it a block away. Oh, man, I need a Subway sandwich tonight. 
And just as that bread was getting done, just before the lunch rush, we would also have fresh cookies. So when you stepped in, you're like, oh, cookies too. Whew, hallelujah. Well, can I tell you in the same sense, prayer will keep the smell of the bread fresh. I, I've lost count how many people have, have knocked on the door, rung the doorbell and said, I just feel God drawing me here. Can I pray? I can't tell you how many people have said when we've asked them, what brought you here? I just felt compelled to come. Recently, I've had a number of people tell me that they felt the Spirit of God here unlike they've ever felt it anywhere else. I don't ever want to lose it. I don't ever want Ruth 1-1 to be said of TCOO that there was a famine in the house of bread. Amen. So, I'm asking you to stand with me. And pray with me right now that God would help every one of us. Because it's not just men of war prayer meetings every other week. It's not just Thursday night prayer meetings where a handful show up. Here's what it is. It's all of us having a place of prayer daily in our lives. To where when we come to those other prayer meetings and when we come to other called worship services or prayer meetings, that the power and the presence of God is manifested. Amen. So I want you to pray with me right now that God would help each one of us to do our part to keep this a place where the bread is fresh, where the praise is fresh. God, we don't ever want there to be a famine in the house of bread, in the place of praise. We don't ever want there to be said that it was stale and dry and, and, and void. But God, we want Your presence so thick your presence so powerful, Lord, that people even driving by, walking by, and living nearby would feel the presence of Almighty God. And even when we go home, if we stop at the gas station or the restaurant or even in our neighborhoods, that our neighbors would feel it and our co-workers would feel it and our classmates would feel it. Oh God, let us take it with us in this world that everywhere we go, we are a place of hope and healing. Let it be so. Let it be in the name of Jesus. And let us never, never, ever have a famine in the place of bread. Awaken in us a sense of urgency in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. I want you to think of somebody right now, a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor, a family member, or a few, if you've got a few. Some of you still got your seven by seven cards. I want you to think of those names and call them out in prayer right now. God, give us an opportunity to reach these. Every name being called out. Every name being spoken. Every name being thought of. Give us opportunities, oh God, to reach out to them, Jesus. To go to them and share with them one more time this apostolic message of life-saving love from Jesus. Oh God, I pray that that you would give the increase of every seed that has been planted and sowed. Oh God, we pray that you would send forth laborers into the fields that are white, all ready to harvest. We ask it in faith, believing and expecting in the name 
of Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Praise God. I encourage you, share. I got a text uh, Monday, I think it was, maybe, maybe yesterday, but I got a text to, from a person that said, hey, God has opened up a door and, and going to be able to teach a Bible study to somebody. Amen. Hallelujah. I, that's what I'm talking about. Just little by little, a seed here, a seed there, sowing here, sowing there. God is doing it. Amen. So let's be the church and let's never let it be said that there was a famine in the house of bread, in the place of praise. God bless you in Jesus' name. We'll see you Sunday.